Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the first episode of Sexy Sips Season 5. It's Julia, one of the sex health reps and the new audio coordinator for Sexy Sips this semester. Uh, and I am so excited to have two amazing people on this podcast today to talk about the topic of abortion, unplanned pregnancy, and the recent policy changes around the subject of abortion and reproductive health care. So, just to get it started, would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to go first. Uh, my name is Robin Watkins. I use she and her pronouns. I'm a certified nurse midwife and a women's health nurse practitioner. I'm the senior director of healthcare at Power to Decide, um, a national nonprofit whose mission is to increase or to um, advance sexual and reproductive well-being for all. And I will pass it over to my colleague, Tara. To introduce herself. As Robin said, I have the pleasure of being her colleague at Power to Decide. I'm Tara Mancini. I use she and they pronouns. I'm the policy director at Power to Decide. And I like to ask Robin questions about health as well. And I love to answer your questions, yeah. Tara. <laughs> Awesome. So I'm so excited that we have both like the policy and the health side to answer these questions because policy is so involved in this topic and at, at the root of it, it is really sort of a medical discussion of reproductive health care. So I'm really just so grateful to have both of you. So we were thinking we would start this episode uh, just talking about unplanned pregnancy or just pregnancy in general, how that can occur, how that might relate to reproductive health care. And so the first question that I have is, what are some of the most common reasons for unplanned pregnancy and what age ranges most commonly experience unplanned pregnancies? So this is Robin. I'll take the first question. I think, I think it's important to say up front that not everyone wants to explicitly plan their pregnancies and that's totally okay. And that there are people who the idea of planning a pregnancy feels unavailable to them or for religious reasons or a variety of other reasons. That, that that isn't something that feels available or that they want. And that's totally okay. People who have unplanned pregnancies, you know, or find out that they're pregnant um, and weren't necessarily expecting it, you know, they, they go on to have, some of them go on to have healthy pregnancies and children that they're quite happy about. But when someone does get pregnant, the next question that they need to ask themselves is, do they want to continue being pregnant? Mm-hmm. If they don't want to continue being pregnant, they can safely end a pregnancy with an abortion. And if they want to continue being pregnant, they'll have two options. They can either continue being pregnant and parent themselves, or if they aren't ready to parent right now, they can arrange for an adoption, which could mean permanently giving up their rights as a parent or a reversible arrangement like foster or kinship care with a relative or friend. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super important to acknowledge that unplanned pregnancy doesn't always mean unwanted pregnancy. It can be a surprise, but it could also be a good or welcomed surprise. And I think within the context of our audience, mainly tough students um, and college students, what are the options that a college student might consider when an unplanned pregnancy occurs? So when someone finds out that they're pregnant, as I said, the, what they'll need to do is consider sort of what's next for them. And some people 
know immediately what they want to do. Um, if they found out they were pregnant today, they say, I absolutely know I would want to continue being pregnant and parent. Other people say, absolutely not. This is not something that I'm ready or interested in right now. And it's also totally normal and okay for people not to know what's best right away when they find out that they're pregnant. And ultimately, there are no right or wrong answers. It's a decision that each individual person has to make for themselves. And it's a decision that you could make one way today and then, you know, six months from now, make another decision. And that also be totally okay. And when people are making decisions about what they want to do after they find out they're pregnant, many people talk to their partner, they talk to friends, family, or other trusted sources like a healthcare provider. And the goal of those conversations, hopefully, is that they're having non-judgmental conversations about their pregnancy options. And some folks that might feel most comfortable talking to someone that they know that they're very close to. And for other people, they might feel most comfortable having those conversations with someone that is anonymous. And there are online counseling, or like hotline, warm line solutions, like all options where people can get that non-judgmental options counseling. Uh, one caveat I'll mention is that folks should watch out for um, fake clinics, sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers. These are places that advertise sometimes ultrasounds, sometimes free supplies for people who want to continue being pregnant. But unfortunately, these places, while they pose as medical facilities, are not. They do not have medical personnel who work there. They might wear scrubs or look like medical personnel. But the goal of these organizations is to dissuade people who are considering abortion from having an abortion. And they don't offer non-judgmental options counseling that gives the individual who is pregnant autonomy to make those sorts of decisions for themselves. Hmm. And do you have any like tips on how somebody might go about identifying that type of center? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you want to ask them about, first you can ask them, do they provide non-judgmental counseling? Will they refer you for an abortion? I think that there are some, there's a really good checklist. Let me see if I can find it um, about like what to look for in a crisis pregnancy center. So some of the things to look for to know whether you are at a crisis pregnancy center or you are at a uh, legitimate health center would be looking at the name. If something is listed as a pregnancy help center or a resource center um, or includes the words abortion alternative or abortion pill reversal, those would be clues that you would be talking to a clinic that doesn't offer equal options. So again, you could ask them if they would help you make a referral for an abortion, if that was the choice that you were making. And you can listen and hear if they're saying negative things about abortion, if they're talking about the risks of abortion or thinking about sort of negative things around having sex or um, birth control in general. Hmm. That's really interesting. And Tara, I did want to ask sort of like on the policy side, from my perspective, it seems really sort of murky how these types of centers could be allowed and legal. And so sort of what about the state of like reproductive healthcare policy currently in the US, you know, leave space for these centers that aren't necessarily providing the services that they are saying that they will? That is a great question. And I want to just start by saying I'm not an expert on the larger sort of 
medical policy in the U.S., but these sorts of clinics have been around for quite a while, and they have become more savvy over time. You know, as as Robin was just explaining, you know, it used to be a lot easier for a person walking in to decipher, okay, what kind of place is this? Whereas now a lot of them are actually trying to look like clinics on purpose. And this is sort of, and this is obviously deceptive, but we, you know, in terms of the policy realm, I will say that California a few years ago passed a law to try to require these pregnancy centers or or fake clinics to post on their doors that they don't provide abortion services. However, this was struck down by courts over free speech, free speech issues. Yeah. As someone who is reviewing a lot of state bills at the moment, they are just pouring in as state sessions begin and and have begun in most states. I am seeing some, you know, bills where, you know, some states provide funds, their own money to these centers. And I have come across already a few bills in a few different states where they're trying to provide more resources to them, particularly in states that are already banned abortion or are hostile to abortion access. But my non-lawyer understanding, being not not being a lawyer, my understanding is that this is sort of has been bought in in the sphere of free speech. Mm, interesting. This is all really useful information and good things to know and look out for going about just learning about your options. And But um, I think we've started talking about abortion, but to go back for those who may be a little bit confused or might not know a whole lot about the topic, I wanted to ask what are some of the leading reasons that people end up having to get an abortion, including what are reasons that somebody may seek an abortion that's not for an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy. So the reasons that people have abortions are as varied as individuals. And so each individual person has their own reasons for for having an abortion. And the reasons that someone has an abortion right now might be different than the reasons that somebody considers, even the same person considers, when having an abortion at another time. And so, you know, it's really hard to say that there is like a leading reason, but it's really important in terms of, for me, thinking about how we center individuals who are making decisions about how they want their pregnancy to progress and, and what they, you know, about bodily autonomy to, to really ask them and to think about whatever the reason is that feels important to them that supports them to be able to make this decision is is enough. There is no good enough reason. There is no there is no enoughness. Just the the individual person's desire to not be pregnant is enough for someone to to have an abortion. And I, I think that it's also important to remember that anytime someone is pregnant, they will at some point in the future not be pregnant anymore. All pregnancies end, and sort of what the exit path from pregnancy is varies. And so for some people, that is they deliver a full-term baby. And for other people, that's miscarriage. It could be stillbirth. It could be an abortion that they have an elective abortion where they, they choose to have an abortion. But there are reasons that for some people, they need to seek abortion care or they need to end a pregnancy for 
you know, medical reasons. So maybe someone needs to um, undergo treatment for cancer that isn't compatible with continuing the pregnancy, or someone has a pregnancy that's outside of the uterus, sometimes called an ectopic pregnancy, or sometimes, you know, there's complications with pregnancy where it isn't safe to continue the pregnancy. And again, any reasons that people need to end a pregnancy before, you know, during, during the course of their pregnancy, um, there are a variety of reasons and they're all legitimate. That's a way I hadn't sort of thought about it before of an elective abortion versus, you know, a non-elective abortion, or I don't know if there's a better term for that, but I think a super important distinction to make in that, you know, somebody may choose to have an abortion, but somebody may, you know, medically require an abortion. I wanted to ask, um, are there distinctions between elective abortion and non-elective abortions in these bills that are rapidly being passed? What's sort of going on with the differences? Sure. So you may recall over the summer after Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade that there was a lot of news coverage and concern about certain states' bills and whether or not bans on abortion or restrictions on abortion would also sort of get into their dealing with ectopic pregnancies or, or miscarriage, or if it's a medical emergency, the pregnant person. And so and, and that those are real concerns because not every bill that makes it to be a law doesn't mean that the uh, language is great or perfect or clear, right? Um, that's why, uh, you know, one reason why laws may be challenged. And so what I am seeing a little more of, I think now in reviewing state bills is states that already restrict abortion or ban abortion and ones that are looking to put further restrictions on it are adding in language that says abortion is X. Abortion does not include, you know, dealing with an ectopic pregnancy mm-hmm. when there is a medical emergency, which, you know, is then further defined by the law. Putting certain circumstances in which it's not an abortion because I guess extenuating circumstances for lack of better word there. But yeah, I think, you know, we we are seeing states trying to clarify that and and say, no, we don't we don't mean that. And we don't mean that because there's a lot of concern, right, that people who need to have an, an abortion and, and just clarify, like anyone who wants to have an abortion. And like Robin said, that is their right. And it's the right decision for them. But, um, you know, in this case where there's a in, in medical emergency, uh, there's a lot of concern that like, OK, you, we've heard these. Right. We've heard these stories during the summer of like a person who had a miscarriage once and it was they were given you know, misoprostol and it was taken care of fine. And then after the law in their state had passed, they were not able to get access to medicine in the same way. And this caused a lot of trouble, medical um, problems for them. And so there is a real concern about this. And so we are seeing maybe a little more concerted effort around this, but to make these laws more clear, but that still is not good enough because it is still taking away 
people's um, access to healthcare decisions. And I'll add that even when we're taking away, even if it's just taking away people's access to decisions about, you know, how they would want their miscarriage managed, even these exceptions in states where abortion is otherwise banned, in reality, they're not giving people access to abortion. If there is a medical emergency in these states, there are not places that someone can go to get the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And so even though these exceptions may be carved out in, in the policy world, that doesn't mean that the people who actually need the care can get it. And Mm -hmm. they might need to travel across three States or, you know, take, three days off of work. And it's, it's really, it doesn't, it's not access. And it's unfortunate that the policy landscape and that these legislators without medical training are setting medical or attempting to set guidelines for healthcare providers who have gone through years of training and are best suited to make the information available to individuals so that they can make decisions about their health in a timely way. And this sort of usurping the healthcare provider's ability to offer the best healthcare to their patients is problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this summer, quite a few state legislatures came back into session to try and pass bans after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And there were debates, you know, public, public hearings viewable online. And via Zoom. And, you know, you had legislators asking healthcare providers, okay, well, what if we give an exception to 12 weeks? What if we do to 13 weeks? And, you know, trying to sort of like hash out a bargain mm-hmm. over this stuff where all of the providers kept saying that, you know, medicine is not this black and white thing. It is more gray and specific to each person. And I can't say that that is, that's going to be useful in my actual practice of, of medicine because it's not. So, yeah. um, but these conversations are going on. And I think, yeah, Robin, as, as the healthcare provider has largely said that they're not in, in reality and practicality, like actually helpful. Yeah. And that's really interesting, sort of what you said of them trying to sort of make the distinctions where there's medical emergencies and saying that it's not an abortion and sort of keeping that abortion is is should be illegal or, or but then certain things aren't abortion and it's really just like so complicated in a policy way where it's been really individualized i i'm hearing like in the medical field you know since abortions became you know, a medical procedure that people were undergoing and it's very like specific to the individual. And yeah, I mean, it makes sense how difficult it is to sort of understand these very complicated policies. And I'd imagine that the the complicatedness of the policy is going to deter a lot of people from understanding what rights are being taken away with just how, you know, sort of tedious this gets. At a certain point to continue, since we've talked about, we've started talking about, you know, what, what might be scenarios and somebody might get an abortion, but if somebody does choose to 
have an abortion, what might that process look like? And how might that process look in different stages of pregnancy for different ages? What is it like to have an abortion procedure? Well, So I just want to reiterate, so if somebody does not want to continue being pregnant, abortion is a safe and effective way to end a pregnancy. Abortion is incredibly safe. Depending on how far along someone's pregnancy is, there are two options for ending a pregnancy. One of them is a medication abortion, sometimes called abortion pills, Mm -hmm. and the other is with an abortion procedure. Uh, Medication abortion is FDA approved through 70 days of pregnancy, but many providers offer it, um, you know, one to two weeks beyond that. There's good um, safety and efficacy data that shows that medication abortion can continue to be offered for um, after the FDA approval. And for the medication abortion, it's actually generally two pills or two different medications. So on the first day you take a medication that ends the pregnancy. The next medication that you take is the one that's the actual abortion process. And in general, that happens at home or somewhere else safe. So that somewhere you have access to a bathroom, it doesn't need to be in your home, but it it is not in a health center. And so for medication abortion, those are for people who are early in pregnancy and use medications to, to end a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. For folks who have an abortion procedure, that would happen in a health center. Most abortions happen early in pregnancy and you go into the health center. The procedure takes between five and 10 minutes. You, they use um, numbing medication uh, on your cervix. They can also give you pain medication or um, anxiety medication, medication for sedation, depending upon what you individually need for that procedure. The procedure itself is very quick, like I said, less than 10 minutes, depending upon how far along you are, and you leave the health center that day, you are not pregnant anymore. With a medication abortion, you do need to follow up afterwards to make sure that the pregnancy has ended. Um, You don't need to come back to a health center. There's a series of questions people can identify um, with a checklist, but you need to follow up with a healthcare provider to ensure that your pregnancy has ended. Thank you. So some sort of follow-up questions on those processes is, is abortion covered by insurance and what are ways to cover costs? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, whether or not your insurance covers an abortion depends upon your insurance and where you live, unfortunately. One way that you can find out is you can call your insurance and ask about coverage for elective abortion, mm-hmm. and they should be able to review your benefits and determine whether you have coverage in that way. There are some restrictions, some insurance plans, insurance plans that are paid for with federal funds. So if you are employed through the federal government, or you have, in most cases, if you have uh, public insurance, like you use Medicaid, depending on the state, you cannot use any of the federal funding for that to pay for an abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for people who have private insurance, so insurance through an employer, they it is up to the employer and the health insurance company, whether it's covered. So the only way to know for sure whether your insurance in particular covers services is to contact your insurance company. Hmm. And I, I heard you mention it's up to your employer in cases, some cases where your health insurance is provided through your employment. That seems to me like that could bring some issues. I don't know. Do you know anything around like 
the policy around that? How does how might that affect access to abortion and reproductive health care? Well, I'll answer that just not having insurance coverage for abortion care and siloing abortion care for decision making about what should or shouldn't be covered um, is is problematic. And the fact that it's not covered by insurance makes it hard for people who are already trying to make ends meet pay for an abortion. While there are lots of ways that people can get funding for abortion services, as well as sort of practical support. So um, that might mean if they need to travel to get an abortion, that they could get support, funding support to to travel. I would say if people are looking for financial support or in-kind support, like transportation or, you know, where to stay if they have to travel to get an abortion, um, mm-hmm. abortionfinder.org has information for your state, the state that you're going to, the state you're coming from, about how to get both practical support and financial support to get the abortion care that you need. So there are resources available for people, but it's just an additional step that that folks have to go through. And even though some people's insurance does cover abortion care, people may choose not to use their insurance for privacy or confidentiality reasons. So if you are not the the policy holder. So for example, if your parents are the policy holder and they might receive an explanation of benefits and you can be covered under your parent or guardian's insurance until you're 26, that they may be, they may receive an explanation of benefits, which would, um, for some people be a privacy or confidentiality concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to co-sign all of those comments that Robin said, but also share that there have been efforts at the federal level in Congress to get rid of, uh, restrictions on abortion coverage in private and public health insurance, the each app, equal access to abortion coverage has been introduced over the last few Congresses. Your listeners may or may not know that this January started a new Congress. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we can look forward to having this bill reintroduced again by its champions, probably not going to become law right now, given the makeup of Congress, but it's, it's a huge sort of feat in terms of just changing the conversation. You know, maybe 10 years ago, you would hear a lot of people say, and even, even the president said when he was running for president at first, oh no, the Hyde Amendment, like restrictions on government funding for abortion, we, that's not, that's a bipartisan thing. We are not going to bring that up for debate. And uh, that's what it was for a long time. And, you know, this has helped change the conversation. And so I think eventually we will get there and in some state there is coverage, but yeah, it's an important conversation changer. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. That's really important. So for younger listeners and, you know, college students, a big concern, you know, looking into seeking an abortion is like, will my parents and family find out? And I'm sure there are many scenarios and even many tough students who would not feel safe having their families be aware of their decision to seek an abortion. So the question is sort of what should somebody do if they're a minor or a young adult don't want their parents or family to find out about seeking an abortion, but have made the decision that that is what they need to do? Yeah. So for abortion seekers who are under 18, it really depends upon where you live. So there are some states that require you to get parental permission 
There are other states that require parental notification. Mm -hmm. And then there are states that don't require either. Mm -hmm. It's really individual to states. And for folks who live in a state that has parental notification or parental consent for abortion, the alternative to getting that is a judicial bypass. And so judicial bypass looks different in different places. And there is a great site that I'll, I'll give you a link for, but it's judicialbypasswiki.ifwhenhow.org. And they have great information for young people who need to get a judicial bypass and getting a judicial bypass can feel super scary. You might have to talk to a judge. You might have to go in front of a judge and tell them about why you are mature enough that you can make this decision, why it wouldn't be safe for you to talk to your parent or guardian. And we know that for a variety of reasons, young people need to seek abortion care without notifying their parents. And and these restrictions are really just make it harder for young people to get the care that they need. And they, they don't increase safety. They, they just make it harder for young people to get the care that they need. And we'll drop all of these um, resources like abortion finder in the description of the podcast so that people have access to them. But Yeah. So another question sort of to follow that for students and young people is I'm sure a difficult question to sort of answer or give a definitive answer on, but how would somebody know or go about figuring out if an abortion is right for them? And what sort of questions should somebody be asking themselves? What things are there to consider? And do you know of any sort of resources to support people in making this decision? Well, I'll start off by saying that there is no right or wrong decision. And it is so individualized that any person making a decision about what to do with their pregnancy, what to do with their body is really, it's up to them. Mm -hmm. And even as a healthcare provider, I can offer people non-judgmental factual information about their options, about how to access the care that they need, whether that's continuing a pregnancy or not. And, and ultimately each individual has to make that decision for themselves. So it's hard to say how someone knows whether that decision is right or wrong for them. Because how does anyone ever know whether something is right or wrong for them? Absolutely. And one of the things that I tell people on a regular basis when I'm doing options counseling, when I'm talking to them, is that you go home with this decision, not me. And you, your future self needs to look back at your current self and feel confident that with the knowledge and the experience that you had right now, that you made the best decision for you in this moment. Yeah. And as long as you can say that, you can feel confident and proud that you were able to make a decision and own it no matter what it is. Yeah. That's great advice. And do you know of any resources that are helpful in like supporting young people in thinking about this? Yeah, one of the resources that I recommend is All Options, so they can go online, be connected to All Options. They there are a couple others that I can I can recommend as well, but um, I know that they do a great job uh, of talking to folks about their options in ways that equally support 
whatever decision it is that they make and to help people talk through their individual decision. For people who want to learn more about abortion and what it looks like to have an abortion, how to get resources, where to get an abortion, where they live, abortionfinder.org is the largest verified directory of abortion providers, abortion support funds and and practical support network. Um, So that would be the place to go to look for information about abortion. For people who are considering adoption, the Child Welfare Information Gateway is the leading resource for people who are considering adoption to learn more about what that process looks like, uh, what they would need to do next, and and how to uh, consider adoption and think about arranging for an adoption. And for people who are thinking about continuing pregnancy and and sort of what comes next for people who want to continue being pregnant, they can go to the March of Dimes to learn more about pregnancy and prenatal care and and what comes next. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I think we just have time for a few more questions, but I wanted to ask sort of broadly, what are some of the like major implications that the recent policy changes have had for reproductive healthcare access in general? Sure. Well, I'm happy to start. Well, I'm not happy to start off by saying, <laughs> but I will start off with saying that the June 24th decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade means that there's no longer a federal protection for abortion and is now left up to the states. And as of now, there is a large swath of the country, 14 states that have no abortion providers. Mm. And so that means that there are there are huge barriers, sometimes insurmountable for folks and that fall hardest on people who are you know, most marginalized already by the healthcare Mm -hmm. system, including Black people, brown people, people living in rural areas, young people. So, you know, if you have to travel several states over to access healthcare, that's not feasible for for everyone. Yes, we have abortion funds that exist. Sometimes people can borrow money from others, but not everyone always has access to all these resources in time to get the health care that they need. And so, you know, it really means that more than 15 million people of at least 15 million people of reproductive age in this country, you know, no longer have guaranteed rights and perhaps don't have access to abortion care. Yeah, Robin, what would you add to that? I would just sort of double click on the you know, focus on people who already had the least amount of access to abortion care, people who already have the least amount of access to health care in general and sexual and reproductive health care mm-hmm. are those who are disproportionately affected by these new restrictions on abortion access. So we didn't have equal access in the beginning of June 2022. And so for the folks who already we're struggling to get the sexual and reproductive health care and health care in general that they need are, are now it's even harder for them to get that care. Yeah. It's, this is a really important and really hard topic to talk about. So I really appreciate all of your time and all of your information. I think the final question that I want to ask and hopefully leave on a bit more of a hopeful note is what are organizations or resources or I guess groups to support during this time for reproductive health care rights? What are some things that folks can get involved with to 
raise awareness and also try to make changes? I mean, I would definitely say um, support your local abortion fund mm-hmm. because they are all in need of more money. And as Robin mentioned earlier, there are practical support organizations in a lot of places around the country that help abortion seekers. It could be providing a ride to a clinic. It could, you know, anything like that. It depends on on, on your local practice support organization, but looking for that, those, and I think we have a link to um, a collection, or you can find those in Abortion Finder, right, Robin? Yeah. Okay. So I would say supporting either of those organizations is a really great types of organizations a really great start great well great thank you so much for all of your time and all of this amazing information is there any sort of message that you'd like to leave (laughs) the listeners of the podcast with today you know even in this changing landscape there is still hope i think that people still can find their way to good providers who center their autonomy and their ability to make decisions for themselves and for their own bodies and their lives. And that all all is not lost, that there are organizations and people out there working tirelessly every day to improve sexual and reproductive well-being and and that means you know there are policy people like Tara and there are healthcare providers like me and and there are just folks all across the country who really are working every day to increase access for everyone who needs it. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're so appreciative of the work that you do and just all of the support that you've given us and everybody that you work with. Yeah, so a question I get a lot is about medication abortion or abortion pills and whether they are the same thing as emergency contraception. And the answer resoundingly is no. They are different medications that work in different ways for different purposes. And medication abortion is pills that you take after you are already pregnant to end a pregnancy. Where emergency contraception pills, uh, there are two different types, are medications that you take right after you've had sex before you're pregnant to prevent pregnancy. So they emergency contraception is birth control and it's birth control that works just like all other birth control works to prevent pregnancy. If you take emergency contraception pills while you are pregnant, they do not end the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And if you take medication abortion pills while you're not pregnant, there's no pregnancy to end. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't work in that way either. So mm-hmm. Thinking about these medications and how you use them, emergency contraception to prevent pregnancy and medication abortion to end a pregnancy, they are different medications used in different ways and you go about getting them in different ways. So emergency contraception that you can get over the counter or with a prescription from a healthcare provider prevents pregnancy and will not affect an ongoing pregnancy. Amazing. And something for tough students to know is that you can find uh, emergency contraception for $15 in the sex health vending machine in the campus center that the sex health reps and the care office has recently opened. So check it out. Get some even just for safe measure. That's a great resource on campus um, for people to know about and a really important distinction to be made, Robin. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I would definitely recommend for folks to go ahead and get emergency contraception to have on hand, as Julia was mentioning, that even though it's sometimes called the morning after pill, there is no reason to wait to take it until the next day. The sooner that you take emergency contraception, the more effective it is because it works by preventing ovulation or an egg from being released from the ovary. So the sooner you can take emergency contraception, the more likely it is to help prevent ovulation and prevent pregnancy. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again. This has been just such an amazing conversation and I'm so thrilled to put this out as the first episode of season five. And yeah, just thank you both so much. And as I said earlier, we'll drop the resources below. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much for having us.